strike one. I'm the greatest hitter in the world! Strike two. Now, obviously, there are some benefits to having an optimistic perspective on life, right? Like looking at the world in a sense thinking that everything's going to be good or turn out positive has some practical advantages to the way we live. But the reality is, is for all of us who have been alive on this earth more than five minutes, we know that it is not always easy to remain optimistic. Well, why? Because tragedy strikes. Relationships end. Plans fail. Hearts break. Bodies deteriorate. And people sin. Because of this, it's very easy for us to slip into what I would call an Eeyore perspective. How many of you know who Eeyore is? Right? Eeyore is the, the donkey on Winnie the Pooh, who is able to find the cloud in every silver lining. I mean, he has the uncanny ability to look on the dark side of everything. So when Pooh says, good morning, Eeyore, Eeyore responds with, if it is, which I doubt it is. Or when he, in complimented on his tail, says, Eeyore, your tail looks very nice. And he responds, it is awfully nice, much nicer than the rest of me. You see, Eeyore seemed to always believe that the future was going to be a disappointment. Can you identify? Have you ever looked at your life and asked questions like this? Is this circumstance ever going to get better? Am I always going to be this way? Are things going to just keep unraveling and getting worse? Undoubtedly, that's how the people of Israel felt in Haggai's day. Remember, at this stage in the nation's history, the greatly diminished people of God had recently returned from exile in Babylon and began to rebuild their beloved homeland. But in the not-too-distant past, Israel had been a major world power and Jerusalem had been a city of influence and culture. But such was no longer the case. This ragtag group of returning expats could not hope to reproduce the splendor of David's city or Solomon's temple. In fact, when they tried to do it, here's what the prophet Haggai says to him, also known as Debbie Downer. That's Haggai's alias. Here's what he says. Chapter 2, verse number 1. They've rebuilt the temple foundation and Haggai responds with these encouraging words. On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through Haggai the prophet. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, to the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and to the remnant of the people. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it seem like nothing to you? In other words, if I could summarize Haggai's message and put it in today's vernacular. Hey guys, you stink. 
You're pathetic. What you've done is not worth anything. Aren't you embarrassed by what you have produced? But we've all been there, haven't we? Your expectations have come crashing to the ground. Your progress seems utterly inconsequential. Your failures become completely overwhelming. So what do we do in these situations? What do we do in these situations? How are we to remain optimistic? Do we just throw in the towel? Do we raise the white flag? Do we take our ball and go home? Or let me ask the question this way. Is discouragement just inevitable in this broken place we call the world? Do you have to live a life of despair? Is it possible to do anything else? Like, we can't be optimistic. We have to be yours, right? Somewhat surprisingly, the prophet Haggai, after his really rousing speech to the people, he gives the answer to that question, and it's no. After saying, basically, you guys are the worst he unexpectedly turns the corner. Look at verse four of Haggai chapter two. Even so, be strong, Zerubbabel. This is the Lord's declaration. Be strong, Joshua. Be strong, all you people of the land. This is the Lord's declaration. This is amazing to me. Haggai doesn't sweep what's going on under the rug. He doesn't ignore the situation. He actually looks right at the ugly situation. He doesn't say, it's not that bad. He doesn't say, things will get better tomorrow. He says, look, you stink. Even so. That, th that little phrase matters. Like, even so. Even though this temple structure seems like nothing. Even so be strong. Now that gives me a great deal of encouragement because biblical optimism is not based on our circumstances, but on God's character. So I don't know what your circumstance is today that makes you seem pessimistic towards the future, that doesn't fill you with a sense of hope about tomorrow. But here is what God's word is basically saying. God has an even so for you, I think. God has an even so. Yes, things have not gone according to plan. Yes, you blew it again. Yes, your character is faulty. Yes, you ruined that relationship. Yes, you didn't get the job. Yes, your body is deteriorating. Even so. That is way better than, you know, just smile. Or everything's going to be okay. No, the Bible takes a real view of human suffering and pain, but it tells us that there is greater hope found in Jesus, which leads me to my point this morning. It's simply this. We must look to the future with faith-filled optimism. We must look to the future with faith-filled optimism. Why? Because our optimism is not based on our circumstances. It is based on the very character of God himself. So how do we do that? What drove Haggai to this bright outlook in spite of the difficult circumstances? 
Fortunately, we don't have to guess about that because as we unpack chapter two, Haggai lays down kind of these two reasons that I think are for us to be optimistic. So that's what we're going to talk about in the next few minutes. Reasons for optimism that were true in Haggai's day. And if you are a child of God, they are true for you today. You have two bedrock reasons to be hopeful about the future, to have faith that tomorrow is actually going to be a good day. All right. Number one, reason number one is the presence of God. So after Haggai's less than enthusiastic review of the work in the temple, okay, he then says in verse four, even so, be strong. And then he pushes on and he explains why they should be strong. So Zerubbabel, be strong. Joshua, be strong. Then we get down to the verse number four, the end of verse number four, and he says, work, why? For I am with you. Remember, I've told you before, like prepositions and conjunctions, they're really important in the Bible. So work for or because I am with you. So the reason that he's calling the people to be strong in the midst of their adversity is God's very presence. God doesn't say, or Haggai doesn't say, be strong because things will go smoothly. If you read the rest of the story, they don't. He doesn't say, be strong because you'll be able to replicate Solomon's temple. Because if you read through history, they weren't. But rather, he says, be strong. Why? Because I'm with you. I'm with you. The principle is simply this. Your present is transformed by God's presence. Okay, it matters that God is with you, brothers and sisters. It matters that God is on your side. This is a consistent theme throughout the scripture, by the way. This idea that God is with his people is reiterated throughout the scripture on a number of occasions, and particularly when God's people are facing challenges. When when Jacob is afraid to face his brother Esau, And he had good reason to be after all. He did deceive him and betray him. So he's going back to meet his brother Esau. And God says to him in Genesis 31 verse 3. Then the Lord said to him, go back to the land of your fathers and to your family. And what does it say, church? You can do better than that. Then when Joshua was called to lead the people of Israel to the promised land, after Moses has passed on the scene, the young Joshua takes over and the Lord says to him, Deuteronomy 31, verse number 23, be strong and courageous for you will bring the Israelites into the land that I swore to them and... When God's people were about to go into exile and they're fearful of what's going to happen to them in this foreign land of captivity, God says, Isaiah 41, verse number 10, do not fear for, do not be afraid for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will hold you up with my righteous right hand. And when Jesus commissions his disciples to take his message into a hostile world, he encourages them with these words. And remember... Okay, you guys are not very enthusiastic about this. I mean, it's starting to hurt my feelings. Remember, I am with you always. That's how it's supposed to be read, not I am with you always. I am with you always to the end of the age. And finally, you have one more chance. When this present age comes to a close and God's promises that everything will be okay. Why? Revelation 21, verse 3, look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself, what's it say? 
will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will no longer exist. Grief and crying and pain will no longer exist because the previous things have passed away. Look, some of the sweetest words in all of scripture are God saying to his people, I am with you. I am with you. It doesn't matter what happens. Do you know that heaven will only be sweet because God will be there? The reason that heaven is good news is because God says, and I will be with you. I will be with you forever and ever. Heaven would not be good news if we got the streets of gold. If we got the gates of pearl and eternal life and the fruit that never died and there was no God. The good news of the gospel, the good news of the Bible is the presence of God. Amen. And a few years ago, I had this migraine headache. Anybody ever get a migraine? They are not pleasant things. And this one was a doozy. And I took the medicine and kind of layered it on it and it just wasn't touching it. Finally, it got so bad that Trisha took me to the emergency room. Um, and if you know my wife, you know like I was nigh unto death if we went to the emergency room, not her favorite place. So we go to the emergency room and I'm just like, I can't even concentrate. You ever had one of those headaches so bad that like you can't like function basically. I'm like vomiting because it's so bad. It's just bad. And I'm waiting, I'm laying on a stretcher in the hallway. They haven't quite got to me yet and I'm just trying to like hold my head. And then my wife just took my hand and she just said something like, hey honey, I'm right here. It's okay. I'm right here. And my wife has no magic powers. Like she has no ability to actually, actually influence what's going on in my physiology, right? Like she doesn't have that ability. She's not like some sort of sorcerer, level 14 or anything like that, right? She's, she's just a regular wife. Maybe she is a sorcerer, level 14. I don't know, right? We have eight children, so maybe. But you know what the reality was is that helped. Her very presence helped. Just the fact that she was with me helped. And if my wife, who has no power to affect a migraine headache, if her presence helps me with pain and brings me comfort in that moment, don't you think the presence of Almighty God, who is sovereign and wise and good and mighty, makes it different when you're encountering problems in your life? Behold, he says, I am with you, so be strong. I'm here. I'm holding your hand. So if your life is difficult and your outlook is bleak, remember God is with you. When the doctor says, I have some bad news for you, God says, I am with you. When the boss says, we have to make some cuts, God says, I am with you. When your significant other says, we need to talk, God says, I am with you. When the news pundits say, the world is a wreck, God says, brothers and sisters, I am with you. God does not promise us difficulty-free lives. He doesn't promise that, but he does promise us no God-free difficulties. There will never be a difficulty that you will face as a child of God where he will be absent from.
He is with you. He is present with you. And there's something deeply comforting about that, isn't there? I mean, there's something deeply comforting about the reality that you cannot be God forsaken. If you've trusted in the work of Jesus, you are not alone. Let me give you an analogy that maybe will help you a little bit like that. How many of you have swam in the ocean before? Ocean swimmers here? The ocean can be a scary place. Why? Because it's so like big and it's so powerful. Imagine you're like, I don't know, a half a mile out from the shore in the ocean. Okay, the water is where you can't touch and the waves are big, so your vision is very limited. And you are out there all by yourself. And you start stroking towards shore. And you go hard for a few minutes. And then you look up and guess what? Nothing has changed. All you see is waves and current. And now your arms and legs are starting to feel a little bit tired. Just sharing this story right now, some of you are breaking out into cold sweats, aren't you? You're like, I don't like the ocean at all. That would be a, a frightening experience because you feel alone and unable to do anything about it. Now, change the scene just slightly. You're about a half mile from shore, a distance that you probably ought to be able to swim, not at a rapid rate, but uh, you, you could probably swim that if you're a decent swimmer. And beside you, there's a boat. And in the boat is Michael Phelps. And on Michael Phelps' shoulder is a life preserver. And as you're swimming towards the shore, he's saying, I know you can't see it yet, but it's right up there. And I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to stay with you. Keep going. You're getting closer. You're making progress. I am with you. I'm not going to abandon you. I'm right here. Does that experience get transformed a little bit? Yes, just the presence of someone who has the ability to do something about your situation transforms it. He don't even have to get in the water, does he? Just the fact that he is there gives you a sense of security and safety that he is not going to let you drown. This, in a sense, is what the Lord is saying. You can look to the future with optimism because God will never abandon you. He will never abandon his people. It doesn't matter how bleak the situation. It doesn't matter how bad you've blown it. If you are putting your hope in the work of Jesus Christ, those who trust in him are never truly alone. Never. Never. So what should give us optimism about tomorrow? It's namely this, the presence of God. My friends, my friends, I don't know your circumstance. I don't know your struggle, but I do know this. If you've rested in the gospel, God is with you and he ain't going nowhere. Number two, what else should bring us comfort in the midst of difficulty? What else is a reason for optimism about the future? It is the promises of God as well. After assuring the Israelites of God's abiding presence, Haggai then gives another reason to be optimistic. Namely, what the Lord has said he would bring about. Look at verse number six. For the Lord of armies says this, once more, in a little while, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all the nations will come and I will fill this house with glory 
says the Lord of armies. The silver and the gold belong to me. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. The final glory of this house will be greater than the first, says the Lord of armies. I will provide peace in this place. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. So remember, the Israelites were disappointed at the product that they had put out. This temple structure was nothing. It was insignificant. They didn't have any resources to make it duplicate to Solomon's or any other temple. It was a cheap knockoff in one sense, and they felt disappointed about that. And then God says basically to them, don't worry about it. Because one day, I'm going to make the glory of this house greater than the former glory, even greater than Solomon's. You thought Solomon's temple was awesome? It ain't nothing compared to what I have in store. And by the way, the silver and the gold, all of it on the earth, it belongs to me. It's not because of any shortage of resources. I won't run out. My resources are inexhaustible and I am able to make this temple better than your wildest imaginations. Yes, yes. What you made is pathetic. But the Lord is not finished. He has not written the final chapter. There is coming a day when God's temple will have a glory beyond your wildest dreams. So what is Haggai talking about? What is this future glory that Haggai envisions? Well, I think it's coming at the end of human history. And we read about it in Revelation chapter 21 at the very end of the Bible. Notice what it says about the temple. Revelation 21 verse 22. This is John the Apostle. I did not see a temple in it because the Lord God, the Almighty, the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need a sun or a moon to shine on it because the glory of God illuminates it and its lamp is the lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never close by day because it will never be night there. They will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. Sound familiar? Seems like Haggai has this day in view, a day when all of the gold and all of the silver and all of the glory of all the world will be found in the temple, and it won't be a physical temple anymore. It won't be a building. There is no need for a dwelling place of God, a building to house God, because God himself will be the temple. He will dwell with his people forever and ever and ever. And Solomon's temple on that day will be like a cheap little outhouse shanty compared to that glory. The point is this. <laughs> For the people of God, if you are between the day of Haggai and that day, our future is always bright. Always. Always, because we await this coming day, which will be a day of incalculable glory. While the Bible never ignores human suffering, while the, never, while the Bible never minimizes pain, it does profoundly put it in perspective by reminding us that no matter how dark the night, the dawn is always approaching. Although it may seem self-evident, maybe this is really obvious to you, but you need to hear it. The story of the Bible ends with a happily ever after. That matters. That 
matters profoundly. The story of the Bible ends with a happily ever after. L let me illustrate that a little bit for you. Um, any Marvel fans here? Anybody? Yeah, okay, right. Everybody. All right. Um, the Marvel Cinematic Universe just ended an epic decade-long story that included 22 movies. You know, over 10 years in the making. 22 movies. And their finale was what? You guys are like... Did we check for pulses when we came in this morning? Their finale is... Okay, why are you more excited than I am with you? Okay, we're going to confront you now, right? Okay, I'm just kidding. That was entrapment. I'm not going to spoil anything other than to say simply this. It was a good ending. If you don't know that by now, I don't know what rock you've been living under, okay? But, okay, it was a good ending. My point is this. If after watching Endgame and seeing how it all played out, then you went back and watched the movies kind of from front to end, but you, you knew the end, you wouldn't get too bent out of shape when Earth's mightiest heroes were in a bad way, right? You, you understand what I'm saying by that? If you said, okay, I've seen Endgame, now I'm gonna go back and watch the first Avengers movie. And in the first Avengers movie, it gets a little dicey. You wouldn't be like, oh no, I'm so worried how this is gonna happen. No, you wouldn't because you're like, I, I know how this is going to turn out. So, yeah, that may be a tough situation right there. Yeah, yeah, it might seem like evil is going to vanquish, but, but I know in the end, there's going to be a good ending. Listen, Marvel is a knockoff of the Bible, by the way. Look, we have the end game right here. Here it is. It ends well. It ends well. It ends well for you. Amen. There is a good ending for you here. And that makes all the difference in the world. This is not just God's story. If you've trusted in the work of Jesus Christ, this is your story. This is your end game in a result. So listen, we don't need to get too bent out of shape. Don't minimize suffering. Don't weep. Don't, don't. Don't avoid weeping with those who weep. Don't avoid mourning who tho with those with mourn. But let us put suffering in perspective. That is put suffering in perspective of the story of human history, of the story of the God of the universe, of your and our story. It is the Bible. Brothers and sisters, when we read the end of the story and realize that it is a good one, this really completely changes how we experience the present in our life. Here's how the Apostle Paul put it. Here's an example of somebody thinking about their present with the future involved. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. Therefore, we do not give up. Well, why would you be tempted to be, give up, Paul? Even though our outward person is being destroyed... So he's being persecuted, he's being beaten, he's being imprisoned. Even though our outward person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day for our momentary and light affliction. Hold up. Have you read the New Testament? Paul? 
Paul is saying that his affliction is momentary and light. If there ever was a person that didn't have light and momentary affliction, it was Paul. This dude was no ivory tower theologian. He got beat up for the cause of Christ on a regular basis. Shipwrecks threatened of imprisonment and death and chased around by his enemies and persecution. They threw stones at him and tried to kill him. This guy was beat up all the time and yet somehow he's able to say, this light and momentary affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. How do you come to that conclusion, Paul? So we do not focus on what is seen, but what is unseen. Here it is, last line. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. In other words, Paul is saying, my future, my outlook on the future is bright. I am optimistic about tomorrow because I know the end of the story. I am filled with faith about tomorrow because I know the end of the story. Listen to this very carefully. For those who trust in Christ, the best is always yet to come. Oh, that, that just brings me joy. Like your best days are not behind you. Your best days are ahead. And I don't care what season of life you're in right now. If you are a follower of Jesus, the best is always yet to come. Some of you are in the thick of it right now. Your life is tough. And while things may not improve tomorrow, or in a week, or in a month, or in a year, or in a decade, what I can guarantee you, based on the authority of God's word, if you have trusted in Jesus, it will get better. And it will get way better. I love roller coasters. Uh, I do. I, I love roller coasters a lot. But the thing about roller coasters is they are roller coasters. All the fun is right at the beginning. You know what I'm talking about? Like on a roller coaster, you usually come out of the gates and then you go. And you have that talk, you know, me and the kids always talk like on our way up and you're not going to die. And Dad, you're not going to die. That type of thing. Um, up we go. And then you go over the first big drop, whoosh. And that's the most exciting part of the ride. And then the, the rest of the ride in one sense is just like, it's just a letdown. You know, you're just, I'm actually coasting the rest of the time. Sometimes that's how we look at our, our lives in one sense. Like we, we have some sort of milestone in our life. We get married or we retire or we have kids or we graduate from college or we get accepted into college or whatever and we're like and then we, we feel like everything else is kind of downhill but for the Christian that's just not a biblical perspective the Christian life is kind of like this whoosh oh another bigger hill whoosh and then another bigger one Whoosh. Forever! Forever! It's just going to get better and better and better and better and better forever. You're like, it doesn't feel like that to me right now. It's because you're still on the first incline. You think you're at the end of the ride. You're right at the very beginning. You're just going over the first drop. That's it. 
Like, we will have eternity. You know the old song, Amazing Grace, when we've been there 10,000 years. Bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Like, compare your life. You know, let's say you get 100. Okay, that's impressive. Compare that to 10,000 years. That is a drop in the bucket. Compare 10,000 years to eternity. That is less than a drop in the bucket. Do you see what I'm saying? Let's not live for this little dot perspective, but let's live for the line perspective. We're going to be alive forever and your life is going to keep on getting better and 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 better ad infinitum because we know the end of the story and it is glory upon glory upon glory upon glory upon glory. That ought to change our perspective on how we live today. It doesn't mean that your troubles or your problems are nothing. That's not what the Bible says. They are afflictions. They are afflictions. But compared to the glory that is in store for us, they are light and momentary. That gives us the courage and the strength to bear up and remain optimistic about tomorrow. This should have a profound impact on the way you look towards the future. We can be optimistic because God's promise is true and you are part of happily ever after. So where does this all leave us? What do, we, what do we do with this this morning? How do we live in light of this reality? I would simply ask you this question this morning. Will you trust? Will you believe that no matter what you are enduring or no matter what you endure in the future, two things are true. One, God is with you. I don't know your circumstance right now. I don't. But will you believe, will you really believe God is with me? He's holding my hand. He's there in the hallway of the ER, holding my hand. It's going to be okay. I'm right here. I got you. Will you trust that he is with you? And two, will you trust that God will keep his word about the good ending? Like really, when you stop and think about it, when when we recognize that there is a good ending in store, it changes how we live today. It changes our priorities. It changes our perspective. It changes everything about us. Do you have the faith to believe that that ending will really be true? That God really will win? That he comes out on top? That Jesus triumphs and there will be glory falling out of his pockets all over his people? forever and ever and ever. It gives us a great freedom when we have the faith to believe that the end of the story is God winning. And here's the thing. Those of us who are alive today, centuries removed from Haggai, have an even greater reason for optimism. You see, if Zerubbabel and Joshua were in chapter 10 of God's unfolding story, we're in chapter 25. And let me tell you something, there's been some good plot development since. First of all, there's been this guy. He was God's one and only son. And he came to earth and he lived the life we should have lived. And he died the death we should have died. And he kicked open the door of the grave because death itself could not hold him. Demonstrating to us that God is able to turn the darkest night into the brightest day. If there is ever a reason for optimism for the people of God is the fact that death itself could not strangle Jesus. 
Jesus gives us reason for hope. What is more, after Jesus conquered death, he said, by the way, folks, I am the Lord of all things. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. I'm going to bring about this ending that is prophesied. I'm going to bring greater glory to the earth than you can possibly imagine. And I'm actually going to invite you to be a part of it. This message of good news, my death, my burial, my resurrection, and the fact that if anyone would trust in me, they can have eternal life. I'm going to invite you into this. And by the way, I'm going to get the job done. Matthew 24, verse 14. This good news of the kingdom will will be proclaimed to all nations as a testimony to the world. And then the Bible says, and then the end will come. Not until then. Jesus will get his job done. And the reality is, is he invites you and I to participate in it. That is reason for optimism. We're on the winning team and God has given us a role. Then the apostle come lately. His name's Paul. As Christ's message was beginning to go to the corners of the globe he reaffirms what we read about in the book of Revelation in Philippians chapter 2 he says it this way there's coming a day when at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and earth and under the earth that, that includes the devil and his minions and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. To put it plainly, Jesus is not the victim. He is the victor. And this makes every, every difference in the world. It means that no present suffering or sacrifice for him is meaningless. It means that no promise of God will be unfulfilled because all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ. It means that no situation is hopeless. It means that no evil, even Satan himself, is unbeatable. Because of Jesus, those who trust in God's word always have a good reason for optimism. Our future is incredibly bright. Yes, tomorrow may be difficult. Yes, as Jesus himself said, some of you, may, they may kill. But not a hair on your head will perish. There is nothing in all this world that can stop the people of God because our ending is inexplicably, unbelievably good. There's a story from the pioneer and missionary named Adoniram Judson. Judson went to Burma where there was virtually no Christians at the time. And during his first seven years, do you know how many converts he saw? Zero. Goose egg. Seven years of laboring on the field and not a single person coming to Christ. Talk about disheartening. Oh, what is more, while he was there, he got thrown into prison. And it wasn't just any prison. It was a prison they affectionately called death prison. Because the vast majority of the people there died. By the way, his wife died while he, she, he was there. Oh, actually, two of them. And his children. Comes back home. Kind of a skeptic says, Mr. Judson, how bright are your prospects for the conversion of the heathen in Burma? And Judson, with a little bit of moxie, simply said this, sir, they are as bright as all the promises of God. Brothers and sisters, there are good things in your future. 
I don't know if they'll come tomorrow or the next day or 10 years, but I do know they will come. We have reason for faith because God is with us and his promises are true. He will bring about the end of the story that he wishes and friends, it is a good one. So let me offer you just two kind of closing words of application. First thing is this, look back. Look back right now. Look back on your life at what God has done for you. Has God been with you? Has he kept his word? Has he worked through your suffering? Has he continued to make you more like Jesus in spite of the difficulties in your life? Just look back on all that God has done. And let me ask you this question. Is this God reliable? Is he trustworthy? Can he bring about a good tomorrow out of a difficult today? And then secondly, look forward. And there is a convicting scripture, a passage of scripture to me in the gospels. So Jesus goes back to his hometown and he's, he's ministering. He's in the city of Capernaum, which is a neighboring village of Nazareth. And they want him to do all kinds of stuff there. They want to see the miracles. They want to see the power of Jesus. And Jesus doesn't do anything there. Nothing. And the explanation the scripture gives is this. And he did no mighty works there because of their unbelief. They were pessimistic. They didn't believe God could do something in the future. They thought that Jesus wouldn't follow through on who he was and manifest himself. Oh, they wanted it, but it wasn't a faith-filled looked at tomorrow, right? Oh, let not that be said of us. When life gets difficult, it can suck out our faith about tomorrow. Things get hard and we're like, things will never change. Things will never get better. But brothers and sisters, God at his word is saying, look, your faith, your optimism about the future should not be about your circumstances, but rather about my character. So look to God and begin to dream about what God could possibly do. Dream about the transformation of your child. I'm a parent and sometimes I am awfully pessimistic. God, forgive me. Help me to be optimistic that God can work through me, as sinful as I am, to help my children see the beauty of the gospel. Dream about the salvation of your friend, your loved one. Oh, they'll never come to Christ. Oh, not if we have a heart like that. You're right. He did no mighty works there because of their unbelief. Let's begin to believe that not that God promises to do exact specific things. My name is not in the Bible, right? I can't look up Ryan McCammock's children will come to the Lord. I can't look that up. But what I can see is the promises and the character of God. And there are many, many things that should give me ample cause to believe that God is working in and through my life. So let's begin to believe God. Oh, friends, do you, do you have a burden for reaching the unreached around the world? Let's begin to pray and seek the Lord and say, Lord, what are you going to do? How are you going to use me? Do you want to see this community blessed and transformed and people build up? Oh, Lord, how are you going to use us? Not God's probably not going to do anything. Look back. Look at all that God has done 
and let that drive you to the future to say, Lord, what are you going to do tomorrow? Now, optimism and pessimism in and of themselves are not sin, right? Like, that's not what I'm talking about here. But I believe believers, believers should be marked by faith, not unbelief. Faith, not unbelief. We have the promises of God. We have his character. And so let us be people who are saying, Lord, will you do something? Will you work through me? Will you work in me? And mine the word of God for those millions upon millions of promises that God gives to us that should give us great reason for hope for tomorrow. Let gospel hope be a place filled with hope because we have experienced the presence of God and we have the promises of God. May that drive us to the future. Let's stand together. We're going to worship the Lord just a moment. Lord, we need you. Lord, would you give us eyes of faith and not hearts of unbelief? Lord, would you transform us? Would you call us to trust you in unique ways? Oh God, we need you. And we come before you right now. And I pray anybody here whose heart is overwhelmed and discouraged, I pray they would be filled with biblical optimism because they have faith in who God is and what he can do in their lives. Lord, we just submit ourselves to you. In Christ we pray. Amen.